Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. In this week's episode, I catch up with the CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC, who is also the current chair of the Queensland Manufacturing Institute. He's enjoyed a very successful and rewarding career, one that's seen him navigate various roles, but for me, it's his role as a husband, a father, and just a phenomenal human being that's really inspired me throughout my life. His thoughts, reflections, and what he shares in this wide-ranging discussion on life, family, career, leadership, and everything in between will certainly provide plenty for you to take away. I'm both honoured and proud to introduce you to my guest, who also happens to be my big brother, Paul Hodgson. Paul, welcome to Share. Good to be here, Steve. Yeah, how's your morning been? Great. Nice walk with the dog and, and with Nicole, and yeah, nice way to start the day, actually. Get the blood pumping. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for agreeing to come on to an episode. Oh, it's a privilege to do it. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, well, we've definitely had some discussions uh, during life, but I thought we'd start by you just giving a bit of a snapshot on who is Paul Hodgson. Wow. How long, how long do you want, Steve? I'm still working out who Paul Hodgson is. That's what most people say. <laughs> well, I think it's true. So I don't think you really figure out who you are. And I think that's fascinating and delightful, actually, particularly once you get over the defensiveness of who you are. Yeah, she goes, isn't this fascinating who I am? Why do I think like that? Why do I do that? But who am I? Okay, so I'm married 25 years to my beautiful wife, Nicole. I'm a father to four beautiful children from the ages of 23 down to 11. And obviously have wonderful brothers and and sister and uh, mum and dad and wider family. Yeah, just loving life, I think, Steve. Um, A real privilege to do what I do and be with who I am. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. During life, I've always admired a lot of your qualities, but as a husband and father, I really admire how you approach being a husband and a father. Have you got some reflections on that? Lots of reflections, but I think you're always learning. Every day is a new set of challenges, new set of experiences, and you don't always put the right foot in the right place. And a lot of it is really, uh, it's a learning, it's a learning journey to do that. No one really teaches you how to do this. It's, but it's, it's basic relationship management. And you realize, I think, as you're growing up that you learn some things positively and you also learn some things negatively. So, oh yeah, I don't want to be like that, whether it's a teacher or whether it's a friend or a family member or someone you had in contact with that you sort of, you know, you, some you come to admire and other times you go, no, actually, I don't want to be like that. And, and sometimes you hear yourself doing something or saying something, and you go, oh, gee, I really sound like that bad experience that I had. So it's really relationship management and you really have to dissect, I think, husband from 
being a parent. They're both very different roles. So as a husband, about to celebrate 25 years in October, I think, tell me what are the, what are the foundations you've found to a happy marriage? I think the key one is that you choose every single day to, to be with that person. It's an absolute choice because there are so many things, and particularly as a parent, that come in and try and distance you from your partner. It's little problems, mm. sometimes problems between you know, disagreements or misunderstandings. Sometimes you're just exhausted. Sometimes you know, life challenges you. And the question you have to keep asking is, are we solving these problems together or are we solving them apart? And we've always chosen to solve any challenges we have together. And it's, it has to be a conscious choice because I think if you try to do it separately, then you'll drift apart. That's my sense. But every relationship is different. So I'm not going to give marital advice. But that's been, that's been our experience is that things can challenge but it's, it's a conscious choice to do, to solve them together, be together and enjoy each other. And in life, we actually learn that challenges make us stronger. So challenges in a relationship should make a relationship stronger. They do, but constant challenge can also be exhausting. So I know that in jobs that I've had, there's, in fact, there's a great book that I like. Seth Godin wrote The Dip and it's very much around when do you know that you're in a dip or you really need to make a U-turn, you know, you're in a cul-de-sac and in your career, and it's the same in your life. Do you actually keep plowing on seeing the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel or do you actually go, this is just a never-ending tunnel and I'm just exhausted and I need to move on? So I think some challenge is good, but it's how it's done and it's also how you reflect and work with that challenge as well. Do you take it defensively? Do you resist? Do you let things bounce off you because you're not going to own them? Or do you kind of go, how fascinating about me? Why am I thinking that way? Why did I react that way? I think I'm reasonably resilient because I feel that I can get through to the other side. But certainly in my career more than anywhere, I've sometimes gone, this is just too exhausting. It's not a great culture. I need to get out because that's either going to make me like that or I'm just going to be dragging myself to work every day and that's not going to be good for my family or for my own personal, mental and physical health. I think through the generations and one of the things that I've noticed, you know, especially in recent years is that there seems to be this kind of, you know, like obviously you're about to celebrate 25 years, but there seems to be whether it's career or relationship that when the going gets tough, you you just give up and you just kind of move on. And I think we're missing a little bit of that resilience in life. Yeah, but it's not always it's not always clear cut at the time, right? You know, you can be exhausted by it. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, I just need to if it's a job, for example, I just need to take a week off, right? Um, I know you need to really listen to your own energy levels. You know, I've done that I, this week. I've been in Melbourne. It's been a really exhausting few days. We're gearing up for the final stage of our interview process for some funding from the Australian government, and we were doing some mock interviews. And preparation. I got in eleven o'clock on Wednesday night back home, and I'm going easy on myself yesterday and today because I know I need to replenish my energy stocks. 
but it also means that I'm not necessarily going to be making the best decisions in that time. So I also need to have that al- alarm set as well, right? So to kind of give myself permission and be gentle and be easier on myself and others till I replenish those stocks, which I know will only take a few days, good sleep, nice conversations like this, spending time with my family, good food, some walks and the like. But uh, replenishing that, those energy stocks is really vital to do. Is that a reflection you've had during your life or, or when did when did you kind of realize that awareness of yourself? I don't know. I think I, I look back on myself at various ages, like little slices of my life, and I see different people. I don't see myself. I don't know if you feel the same way, but sometimes you look back and go, wow, that teenager or that the, the man who, who married in his mid to late 20s, the one who became a father in his late 20s. And I've been a father now for 23 years. But I think about decisions. I think about perhaps how defensive I might have been, how naive I probably was, how in some ways I thought I had everything sorted. I knew, you know, that I was a good person and that I was, my reactions were always the best ones and everything. But you, you get you learn and you develop. And it's actually fascinating. I love it. Uh, the learning and development, I always used to think was something you got through your career. It was a job-based thing. But personal development is it's a delight. You know, when you actually pull away that defensiveness and you become vulnerable and you say, you know, I'm not a perfect human being, but I want to be better. And that's great. So I think it's probably only the last few years, Steve, I think. But my, my family and people around me might differ. But I kind of feel like I'm constantly learning and adapting who I am and how I respond and how I, how I am in the world to all those experiences and learnings. Now, Father, for 23 years, can you tell me what have you learned most about being a dad? That you think you're teaching your kids and you're helping shape your kids, but it's actually the other way around. So my mm. biggest teachers are my four kids. And the whole nature, nurture, how much is DNA, how much is who they are, they are humans, right? They are decision-making humans from very early on, and your job is to nurture them, love them, hopefully not damage them too much, but we all are damaged a little bit by our experiences because they're so acute at that age, and it's very much you're really trying to help them be the best they can be of who they are. You're not trying to make them into something. They're not pieces of clay that you can kind of just mold. And also that they're very different. Our four kids are all beautiful, love them to death. But my God, that four kids, four brothers and sisters could be so different is quite interesting. I remember before we had our first one, we read all the books as you do when you're the first, you know, you're reading the books. And effectively, you could throw them away. I mean, they're quite useful in some ways, and some of them are quite funny. But kids know what they want from pretty early on. They know who they are, pretty much. And sometimes you actually just have to hold up the mirror for them so they can see who they are because you really get it. I don't know if it's right to recommend another podcast on a podcast, Steve, but I've started listening to Hamish Blake's How Other Dads Dad, and it is fantastic. I'm not a big podcast listener. I probably shouldn't say that on a podcast either. But that one is one that I just love. I'll have to check that one out. That sounds that sounds good. And I'm we're all about sharing, right? So books, podcasts, whatever you can you can share away. Yeah, well, I've, I've I only listened to about three or four so far. I listened to Eddie Betts talking about it, uh, the AFL player. I've heard Joe Brum, who created you know the creator of Bluey, 
and how he dads. And I can't remember his last name, but uh, an English comedian who's on Breakfast Radio, I think, in Melbourne, a guy called Christian. And that was just, I was on a plane actually listening to that one and I was laughing out loud. I think people thought, wondered what I was listening to. But it's just, it's great because actually, I think there's much more mums and mothers talking about, you know, being mothers together. I don't know if there's a lot of dads talking about being a dad. And I think it's very difficult to know what a dad is. I think most people would say that their experience of fatherhood from their own dads and from their grandfathers has changed a lot. And so in some ways it's quite common perhaps for people to wonder what is it to be a dad? What is it to be a father? What am I supposed to do? If my grandfather was the one that dealt out discipline, or if my dad was the one that was only there on holidays or, you know, when we were going to the football or something, but not really there, you know, helping unload the dishwasher or putting out the washing or showing me how to clean the house or, or how to sit and read a book gently with me. What, what is being a dad? And so I'm really enjoying just, I think the lightheartedness also, you know, not making it too stressful, not making it too serious, but, but just that empathy of, what it's how difficult it can be to be a person in the world sometimes and particularly as a parent i think as well being a parent and something i've worked out over the last few years is that showing vulnerability to your kids i think is important as well and i think that helps their resilience yeah and i think it changes as the kids get older as well you don't want to show too much vulnerability when they're younger because they are very acutely aware that you are their survival right so food shelter And if you're, and I suspect for people who have childhood trauma, it's actually having that lack of security at an early age by potentially your parents showing too much vulnerability. Mm. And I shouldn't probably use the phrase too much vulnerability because I don't think you could be too too vulnerable, but you are a little bit more of a, a rock for them. As they get older, that's where your relationship changes with your kids. And particularly as they hit their teenage years and saying, you know, I've been there and, and not in a, I know exactly how this is going to go for you, but just that pure human connection of, I don't know what you're going through, but I've had similar feelings in the past, right? I may have an idea. I'm not to then spend an hour talking about my experience to try and make them feel better because that's not what it's about. It's not my story. I'm a listener in their story, but being there for them and knowing what that feeling is. I don't know about you, Steve, but even at my age, I it's feelings that I can remember. I can remember a feeling from being a teenager and it's that feeling which I feel and I go, wow, I know where that's coming from. And it's kind of how do I work with that and how do I use that to make me feel better but also make people around me feel better as well and not necessarily react based on that on a very base level. Yeah. Now, being the oldest brother and the experience that you've had from moving from England to Australia – getting a new brother. How do you think that has shaped you? I think being the oldest and particularly where we move, we did move from one side of the world to the other and it was 1982. So for a lot of younger people now, they would struggle to understand that distance, right? So there's no, I'm playing games with my cousins and friends from England or uh, online or where we're on Instagram or we've had a FaceTime call or anything like that. This was this was a 10-year-old heading to the other side of the world. And I think with my cousin, who was about seven weeks older than me, who was my best friend, 
I think we might have written three letters to each other. We didn't even have a telephone in our house. Back then you had to book an international phone call from the from the phone box. I'm sounding really old. That's going to blow someone's mind, That just that. <laughs> yeah, I remember exactly the phone box we went to. It was up near Bundamba State School. It was up on um, Bergens Hill Road, up the, the top there. And we would go up there and you would actually pick up the phone and you would say you had a, a booking, I think, and they would, they would connect you through. And it was extraordinarily expensive as well. So, in fact, we actually got a telegram as well when our grandfather had a stroke a really short telegram, which I can still remember now. I think it was from Uncle Simon who said, pen must talk sight because it was all by the letter. So how much expensive it was. So you got, the, you got that delivered to you effectively by the, post, the postal worker. And then going into a migrant camp and coming out of a, a pretty closeted existence and then going into a multicultural place with wooden huts on the other side of the world, not knowing anyone and having... At the time, two younger siblings who I became a protector of, right? I became fiercely protective of not just Joe and Mark, but you as well when you came along. And particularly when you came along, mum and dad were both working. So I was changing nappies. I was making bottles. I was taking you to the, to the babysitter. So, I, so actually, as a dad, I had more of those kind of base parental skills when I became a dad because, because of you, Steve. Yep. But it did make me, and it's been something that I've struggled to wrest out of me. Something I'm proud of is that I'm quite, I'm very responsible, but it's also one of my Achilles heels as well, that I'm perhaps too responsible and will always look to take responsibility. I always want to be in control, but not from a control freak kind of perspective, but just just in case I'm needed. Just if something goes wrong, I, I kind of need to be able to throw my Superman cape on and look after everyone. You know, I need to save Gotham City if I was Batman, right? So it's something that I've had to rest with a little bit around that. But I think it also brings resilience if you attack it the right way. I are quite independent. When I went to Canberra, actually, I spent a couple of years in Canberra pretty much on my own as well. I don't like being on my own, but I can cope on my own, if that makes sense. It's not my preferred thing. I like to have people around me. But sometimes if they're not the right people, you can feel lonelier in a crowd than you can on your own anyway. So finding your tribe. So I've always felt like an outsider, Steve. I've never, that's almost repelled being an insider. And I, and I, I suspect that's as that's just got as many negatives as, as positives, to be honest. I, I worry about groupthink and I worry about being in, inside an organization where everyone's just drinking the Kool-Aid and thinking the same things. I like to bring an outsider's perspective, which is challenging. That's probably a good segue into your career. You've had a, a career of wide-ranging roles. Can you have you know, a bit of reflection and, and a bit of a snapshot on your career journey to date? Yeah, it's been an interesting one. I've I've never really had a goal in mind in terms of getting to a particular level or a particular role or a particular standing. And probably my upbringing, dad was a bricklayer, mum had a range of roles, but effectively always in the kind of caring and service space. And first in the family to go to university. I had no idea what university was. I didn't really have any experience of, didn't know anyone that had been to university. Mum particularly was keen on me going to university, but I went straight out of school. I was, what was I, 17 when I went to university and it was really an extension of school for me. I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
I wanted to think, I think I wanted to care. I wanted to be in, in health or town planning or, or something, but I really didn't have a clue. And so I ended up doing a really generalist degree. It was called international business. I think the international stuff has always been strong for me being a migrant at such a, a sort of impressionable age. So I've always had this sense of the world and my role in it and the size of the world and how we could all be better connected. And so the international stuff really was interesting to me. And I've worked in, so I've worked in government, I've worked in nonprofit, I've worked in big consulting, I've worked for myself, and I've never really had the same role twice. And partly I think it's variety I like, and it's partly, and maybe this is coming as a migrant, is understanding that there's different perspectives. So I like seeing a problem from lots of different perspectives. And I've kind of developed up that through my career and I really see it as a my kind of superpower now is that ability to make connections so that's idea connections but also people connections so you two should really meet each other and have a chat and they go and people trust me to do that now and when they do they go oh that was amazing I would never have met Joe or Susan or whoever it is but but I've met them now and wow, we, we just clicked and business wise or whatever it is. So I've got this ability to just make connections, but I think partly that's my experience, but partly it's probably influenced by me being a migrant at, at the age of 10 or 11 into a completely different country. And I know we, it was still people were speaking the same language, but it was very different. Moving to Ipswich in 1982 was very different from Merley in the UK in 1982. Uh, you know, I turned up very formally. I think I took a briefcase to school. You could laugh at that now, but I took a briefcase to school at the age of 10 where kids weren't even wearing shoes to school and I had leather Clark's shoes, right? So, so you, got, you got teased a fair bit. You got pitted against the rest of the class, all those kind of things that teachers think they're doing to make you feel better, but it's actually alienating you even more, right? So all sorts of strange things, but... Again, it's being fascinated by who you are and be, and taking joy in that, I guess, and, and ownership of it. Now, some of the people through your career, um, who's, who's, who's some of the people that have had the greatest impact on your career? I think it's interesting. There's a few people that really stand out. One is a guy called Phil Harrington, who was, when I went to Canberra as a graduate, I went into an economic policy branch, and he was the branch head. And he, I, you started at a, a level one or something at the beginning of your year. You did three rotations in the organization. And at the end of the year, you, you effectively became a three. But there was someone in that, my, and economic policy was my, my home branch. And at the, I came back at the end and I knew that Ross was going off on long service leave. And I don't know where I got the gumption, but he was a level six. And I said, I'll come back, but can I act in Ross's role for six months? I mean, look at me. I mean, I was 21. You know, I, I had no experience. I was drowning in a sea of all this new stuff. And he said, look, let me think about it. And he came back to me the day later and said, yeah, you can go. So I went from a one to a six in less than a year. And I, again, I don't know where that courage comes from, but, but he was, but he really, he was a great guy. He was a real mentor. He was quite a young branch head himself and he was great. The other one was I really wanted to come back to Brisbane after a couple of years and I didn't really have the experience. I didn't really know what the job was, but I transferred back to Brisbane and there was a guy called Shane Campbell and Shane was the acting head of that part of the department in, in Brisbane. 
And he really took a punt on me. There was something he liked about me, but I didn't have the industry experience. I didn't have the qualifications that potentially other people who would have wanted to get out of the department in Canberra back to Brisbane. And he was, yeah, he really influential in in doing that. It's it's funny, people who have that impact on you, Steve, can be for five minutes or it can be for your whole life. And, you know, I haven't seen Shane for a long time, but that was just one decision he made to see me, believe in me, and take a punt on me that made a big difference because I, I mean, how many sliding doors do you have every day? And that was that. I've had a, a, a series of interesting work experiences since. I've had some great bosses and I've had some not great bosses and I've learned from both. And sometimes your best mentors aren't people who you work with, but you meet along the way. And so there's a lot of people I catch up with now who provide almost a father figure type role, or it's just, it's just nice to, to catch up with people who you, you have a lot in common with. You have a values commonality and you also have a, an interest and a, a desire to make a difference commonality as well. That sometimes is a great way of re-energizing and kind of recentering yourself because it can be pretty hard out there when you're you're up against people humans are tough you know you're i'm 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 as tough as everyone else it relationships are tough building communities tough people have different opinions different views things get misrepresented the difference between intent and action is something that i think you never get perfect at now tell me what does being a leader mean to you i think the key thing is leaders develop other leaders Leaders to me are about trying to bring the best out of the people around you. So leaders, I think it's, I sometimes hear it called servant leadership, but it's not really servant leadership. To me, I see it as much more distributed leadership. I don't see it as in a hierarchical sense. Whenever I've led a team or led an initiative, it's very democratic. Sometimes you you have to make a tough decision or you make the decision or you have to pull things back to a focus. But I do let people make their own decisions and I guide them in their decision making and help them to make better decisions and I also want people to be finding the things in the job that that spark joy for them and I will let them know that I know this is tough at the moment but I'm I'm keeping an eye out for something that might come along that you'll really love or or how can we make this more fun so to me it's more leader as coach and mentor, I think, rather than leader as an authoritarian kind of, this is my way or the highway kind of approach. Yep. And what leaders in your life have inspired you? What leaders in my life have inspired me? It's a really good question, Steve. You know, it's really interesting. I worked in the the Julie Gillard government and, you know, she doesn't get a lot of credit for her role. She was a very distributed leader, a distributed leadership. She actually empowered ministers and departments to to do a lot. So there was a lot of work that happened while she was prime minister. And I, I happened to work for one of her ministers as a senior advisor. And watching her work, the way she was, she was gentle, she was friendly, and she gave people the opportunity to do great things. The downside of that kind of leadership, and it's the same with me, is that by trusting people first and not 
waiting for trust to build. You can get things done quickly. It's a nice way to operate, I think. But it does mean you, it does open you up to people who may take that trust for a bit of a ride. And I think that the same thing happened internally with Julie Gillard, to be honest. I think the loyalty and the trust that she provided to others wasn't really repaid. So that's one of my weaknesses of my character, that it can leave me open to being seen as gullible or naive if people don't have the best of intentions working with me. But I wouldn't want to be the other way. I wouldn't want to be cynical and jaded and not trust anyone. And people have to earn my trust. I'd much rather it the other way. So people who, you know, the real leaders are actually people we don't hear about. There are people that show leadership all across organizations and across society that are doing amazing things. It's got me involved in something called the Global Entrepreneurs Institute. Entrepreneurs are people who often are the, seen as the hero startup leaders. They're in the black t-shirts, they're, they're on the stage, but there's so many people inside organizations that actually like working with people. They don't want to take the credit, but they are innovative, they're courageous, they're driven by impact, and those leaders exist everywhere, but they are often misunderstood inside organizations because they're seen as a bit irritating, because they're, they're not just saying yes they're saying, hey, we could do this a bit better. And some leaders don't like that because they see that as an affront. They see that as a challenge. But really good leaders put better people around them. I would say Richard Branson, in terms of billionaires, would be a leader that I would admire a lot more. I've seen a lot of the work that Richard Branson does is he lifts other people up. And it's really only when he got into the airline business where he actually became much more the front person. It wasn't in his character at all, but he uh, he had to he had to really push himself to be the front figure. But he's he's very much uh, backing other people's ideas, making them come alive type of person. It's uh, it's not a egocentric. I mean, you've got to have some ego, right, to have any impact. But he's not completely driven by ego. Instead of ego for Richard Branson, though. He seems to just do what he loves doing and then it comes natural. He loves that adventure side of things. He loves being who he is. And it's interesting talking with Lachlan, you know, my son, and we we're talking about Richard Branson. I said, it's interesting. You've got so many, you know, billionaires and millionaires out there, but Richard Branson, I don't think has ever been moved by money. It's more purpose and what he wants to be remembered for. It's more legacy. Oh, absolutely. And he's he shows vulnerability, right? He uh, There's a lot of virgin businesses that don't go very well. And it's been absolutely driven by what he sees. He's got a sharp insight, I think, into what the next opportunity looks like. To be able to look at an industry and to go, there's something that's not quite right here or someone's making too much money or customers are unhappy or there's something and I can inject and do that. Ego is often seen as a really bad thing, but ego is actually the ability for you to go, I can do something, right? I'm important. I can do something. We get a bit caught up in the, oh, no, ego is a bad thing. Well, actually, ego gets you out of bed in the morning. Ego is the thing where you go, I can call this meeting or I can ring this person because I think I might have something of value for them or I think I, whenever you're thinking I, you're thinking ego. So, so Richard Branson does have that, he does have that more approach I think that I admire as a leader. It's a testament to how people think of you after you've worked with them, I think. But you've got to have fun. 
you've got to find love and fun in what you're doing. You've got to make other people feel better knowing that they are struggling through the same life challenges that you are. So being empathetic, being flexible, trying to bring the best out of them in some ways, a lot like parenting, just smiling, being nice to people, saying, how can we do this better? Being focused on the outcomes, but allowing creativity in the way people find their way to that outcome is important. Don't be a micromanager, but being there to guide and support when people need guidance and support, but other times letting them find their own way, finding out what it is that brings them joy and, and you can help them find that through their work, given how much time they'll spend there. So there's a lot tied up in it. It's a bit like parenting. <laughs> it's not a hierarchy. Parenting's not a hierarchy. I think if people think, if parents, you know, I always felt that if parents were kind of making decisions for their kids, that you're not going to help your kids become good decision makers. And uh, leadership's the same. You're actually trying to guide people in understanding how to make good decisions and how to, how to have impact in a really imperfect, complex difficult world Mm. and it's hard as well the higher the leader or the more public the leader you spoke about julia gillard i think it's really disappointing that some leaders aren't known for their good leadership as you say the way media is and everyone wants to you know kind of tear people down it's interesting i've heard lots of leaders over the years where you know, the media will give you a view of them, but then you'll, you'll meet them or you'll meet someone that worked with them and they'll say, oh, he was, he was great or she was just phenomenal. And you go, oh, wow, because the media or society hasn't kind of allowed that person to really show their true colours. Yeah, well, and it goes both ways, right? There are people who are maybe celebrated in the media And if you spoke to anyone or if you actually met them, you'd go, I've never met someone so rude and obnoxious, right? And we we hear this all the time, right? We see it in the media. Person who's kind of a, a, a star, they're celebrated, you know, everyone hangs on their every word. And then some brave person calls them out for it. And then there's a deluge. There's people that are like, oh, yeah, that person was terrible. But it's So we do have, you know, you hear about the tall poppy, but there's also a whole bunch of people that are kind of their public persona is almost untouchable. It's a reputation, it damages people's reputation for even questioning that they're not these amazing people. There are people going through challenges through their life. I think there are very few kind of bad people, but people's life experiences are different and people how and how they choose to respond to that. I try to respond to challenges in a positive way, but it's not always easy. It's easy sometimes to lash out. It's easy sometimes to be in your head and to and to be really caught up in it but letting it go in the words of Elsa is often sometimes the best thing to do I'm glad you didn't sing that I thought you might have <laughs> exactly that's right you can tell Disney movies and Pixar movies have been very big in my life uh, for the last 23 years that's for sure now Paul can I ask you whenever us siblings have any uh, thoughts on career or we've got some struggles around that we've always kind of really lent into your knowledge and experience and your advice in regards to career and work. What are some recommendations for those at the moment that are kind of between careers or looking for a new job? I think the key one is, well, there's three things I think are important. One is confidence. So there's a little bit of a fake it till you make it. 
right? It's very easy, particularly if you're out of work or you're a new entrant to an industry, to look at everyone else and be quite, feel quite inferior. But confidence is really important. I've been mentoring university students since 1997, so what's that, 26 years. And confidence is the major issue that I find is that people go, I'm going out into a market, I graduate at the end of the year, you know, there's going to be 5,000 graduates across the country and international students as well that are all trying to get these jobs and I'm just one of many, how am I going to be able to do this? And so there's a, a sense of lack of confidence in their own ability. The other one is to actually really know who you are. What do you enjoy doing? And what are the life experiences you've had? What are the work experiences you've had? How do you think? How do you act? What makes you get lost in, in the flow during a day? What, what are the things that might give you more energy during the day? Understanding that, I often ask our mentees if they don't know what they enjoy doing and don't think about a job or a title or an occupation or go on to seek, think about from yourself, what is it that I like doing? right? So I, I can't see you, Steve, spending all day looking at spreadsheets. That's right. Or writing a report. And you and I are quite similar like that. There, I could do a little bit of that, but there are people who that's what they want to do. And the thought of hosting a podcast, standing up on stage, presenting, facilitating a workshop in a room with butcher's paper and whiteboards and where they would rather die almost literally, right? And so the whole idea is to actually understand what it is. Because if I go, let's say I'm interested in real estate. Well, actually, what are you interested in real estate? Well, I'm actually really good at organizing properties, or I'm really good at, I like doing all the spreadsheeting, and I like doing the payment side, or I like understanding, or I like being the person that's out there at the open home chatting with people, or I'm like the person. So all of a sudden, you can go, well, actually, I, now I'm finding out more about myself. So that when I'm trying to find a job, I'm not competing against a sea of people just like me. I actually know now how I'm unique. And finding a job is really about finding your uniqueness, finding the right match culturally in a fit, but also in, in an approach. You want to find a team where you will add value and people around you will complement your skill set as well. So they'll do the things you don't necessarily want to do. So I think it's about fit is the really important one. I think it also takes a discipline. So when I've had periods where I've been made redundant or I've, I've exited a job early and to nothing, and sometimes that's been as long as seven months and I've had four kids and been the sole breadwinner, right? So all those types of things have been, have been a, a challenge. Bring a discipline to it as well. So I'll often then have a spreadsheet and I'm not a spreadsheeting kind of guy but I will write down the jobs that I've applied for. I will put closing date and I will use it like it's a sales development process and I'm the, I'm the product, right? And I'll go, okay, that one's closed. Did I get feedback? What did the feedback say? What does that say about what I might do next? I might need to describe my experience a bit more. I might need to hone my interview skills. I might need to do a short course. Well, maybe that's not the one for me. So I'm not going to apply for jobs like that anymore. But over here, I'm getting a bit of interest for people who want to employ me. Maybe I need to lean into that a bit. What's that about? Why are they looking for me? So it's a bit of an analysis on that, but also getting up each day 
a few times I would put the suit on, I'd get ready and I'd go into the city and I'd sit in a coffee shop and I'd have a have a coffee. Sometimes it'd be somewhere where I knew that people I knew would be wandering in and out and, and I'd make it look like I'm waiting for a meeting or something. But it's that positive step to get up in the morning and kind of go, okay, I'm working. I'm I'm part of this. I'm not I'm not sitting on the couch kind of thinking about well what could have been or how do I do that but it's again it's it's trying to be positive about it bit of fake it till you make it but understanding but confidence comes from being knowing who you are and and what it is that you want to do so even if it's write your own position description because if you write your own position description for the job that you would like to do then you are much more likely to find that job than if you're just being reactive to what's being advertised if that makes sense yeah that's great Hopefully there's something in there, but I've, I've learned a lot of that over the years and it's been helpful. Mentoring is really good because you actually, it's a two-way mentoring, right? I hear some amazing stories from students about what they've done and what they're, what they're doing. I'll give you just one example um, of that connection. So I was mentoring one university student and she wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do. She was doing Bachelor of Business. And she was working at Coles and she was doing really well at Coles five days a week. But like me, first in family, out in the suburbs, working at Coles, putting herself through uni and doing a Bachelor of Business. But the way she talked about her Coles job was, ah, it's just paying the bills, right? You know, it's just something that I'm doing. It's not connected to my university. And I asked her, so what do you... I explored a little bit more about what she was doing at Coles. I said, wow, you're working for one of, you know, one of the biggest retailers in the country, the, the business skills, the, the market insights. I've seen the, the AC Nielsen stuff that they do in terms of they, the consumer behavior, the preferences. I said, it's amazing. When I started talking to her, she had an amazing insight into consumer preferences, how consumers worked, her leadership. I think she was like an assistant store manager. She was brilliant. And so the next assignment that she was doing, in, she went into doing, I think it was like consumer behavior or something. And she got, uh, she applied her Coles experience into that assignment. And she got uh, amazing. I think it was like the top mark she could get. And the lecturer had said, have you considered doing honors? You know, that was one of the best pieces of work. But that was her aligning something that she spent a lot of time with that she saw was disconnected from it. She ended up then going on and working for a market research company. And then a few years later, I said to her, you know, how are things going? And she said, well, actually, I'm really interested in how people think and behave. But I found the market research stuff a bit shallow. So she actually went back to do anthropology. Wow. At university and, and, a, and a, an associate diploma in museum studies. And you kind of go, that, what an amazing journey. But a lot of that came from who she was and how she worked and how she thought and how she was applying that and how her Coles experience was part of it. How many new entrants into the job market would kind of almost apologetically or embarrassingly list out their, their experiences? You know, were you working at Network Video when you were a teenager, right? You think about your skills, your experience that you got through that and how that helped you getting into real estate and getting into other things. But it's amazing how we, we, we don't join up the parts of our life and, and create a unique selling proposition. And a lot of people are put in boxes when they they kind of take their jobs, like even their first jobs. And, you know, I hear people that say, I just worked at Maccas. Now we... We know more than most the power that 
McDonald's can have to shape a person through their life, their leadership skills. And they've probably got one of the best process and management training courses and and the development that they put people through that really does shape a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. And so, and again, this is the confidence thing. If I said, if I'm going into an interview, they go, oh, so you know what's your work experience? I just worked at Macca's. Do you think the future employer is going to be impressed by that? Because it says that you're not actually owning who you are, right? But if you went, well, actually, I worked for a multi-million dollar turnover business with 100 staff and in the fast-moving consumer goods business, and I was responsible for ensuring, you know, you could be cleaning the restaurant, right? I was, I was helping the customer experience. I was maintaining the brand and reputation of the organization. And while I was there, we finished uh, as the third best store in Queensland. We aced our kind of assessments that we got against it. Um, And not only that, but I won employee of the month three times in the two years I worked there. There's a difference. You can see that, can't you? I just worked at Macca's to that. So it's again, it's how you use your confidence to actually position what it is you're working in. The context is everything and how you also then go, you know what? Yeah, I did. I really made a difference because you can make a difference in anything. You don't have to be saving the world or curing cancer or anything to make a difference. You can make a difference to the people around you with a smile, with a bit of support. I mean, it could be at McDonald's and you you see a, a parent with trays taking it back to the, the three toddlers kind of running around the table and coming in there and picking up that saying, hey, look, can I give you a hand there? That stuff, that's being a human, right? It's being a human in the world. It brings so much joy to yourself, joy to others. And that sets you up well, I think, for all your career and and personal life, not necessarily swooping in and saving people, but just being there and saying, hey, look, I see you. I can see what you're going through. And sometimes just a smile and a bit of an encouragement is all that's required. Just a smile can be encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know what it's like when you're in the middle of that parenting zone and everything just seems to be going to mud and just other people going, yeah, you got this. Yeah. Actually, what you were just saying around we don't like kind of owning a position. I can't remember who told the story, but there was a story about a gentleman back in 1969 and they did a a tour of the of the facility for NASA and the guy walked away and he they were in the where the spaceships and everything were and he went over and there was a guy sweeping and uh, he said oh what do you do here and he said oh I help put man on the moon right so because he said if I don't do my job perfectly an ounce of dust ever in this environment can fail a mission and I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes two ways then. So you asked me what, what's a leader about? And a leader understands that all of those jobs are critical to the task, right? What can often happen is the salespeople or the engineers or something, you know, the people developing the product are important, but it's actually all the way through. If you're in a real estate industry or if you're you're in the car retailing business, so you might have people coming in washing cars every day. If you don't get them to celebrate the sale of those cars because people are more likely to buy a clean car that's gleaming, the one that's covered in dust and tree branches and things, then you're not a really good leader. A leader is someone who can actually recognize and understand. And I've noticed that through my career, particularly people who get quite senior, they lose the ability to thank, acknowledge, and be grateful 
for people who are making their life easier. I always say thank you to the people filling my water back up or they're taking my plate. I say a quiet thank you, but it's amazing how few people do that. I remember one person once said to me, when you're on the plane and the flight attendant there is doing their job on the safety briefing, most people aren't watching them. I take the time, I pause what I'm doing, and I I look at them and I and I thank them for it, right? They are there doing that job. When you're in the in a public toilet and the cleaners in there, when you leave and I say thank you, because these people are they're going about their job and they are making life easier for everyone. There is nothing. I mean, we know coming through the pandemic, that sense of an essential worker has been quite sobering for a lot of people. And how important coming through a pandemic is a cleaner. And it's those types of jobs that I think and you see leaders doing that you see people doing that you might not always think that you're you know that you're in the job that you want to do but you can find joy in any job if you want to and by finding joy in a job it lifts your spirits it lifts your productivity it actually makes you more attractive to other employers as well and i know it's tough i've had lots of times where i've been doing things and i obviously don't look like i'm enjoying it and you've either got to well you've either got to push through you've either got to change your attitude or you've got to hit the ejector seat and find something else that does bring you joy. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I was actually going to touch base on with that tips for applying and interviewing for jobs, people changing careers. I love your thoughts and how you use the power of LinkedIn. Could you share some thoughts on that? So it probably goes back to, I did a master's of sustainable development 20 years ago. And one of the things that I found was that business development and sales up until then had been very transactional. And it's also about making the sale, right? So it's the salesperson trying to to get the buyer to make a decision and to get not to make any decision, to make the decision that the seller wants you to make. When I did Masters of Sustainable Development, I majored in sustainable communities and I learned a lot more about community development. And community development is effectively putting two people together, it's about building community, but not necessarily putting you in the center of that. It's not about you, it's about them. So it's about how do you build a community? I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time, and I was working with a, a guy who's been really influential for me, a guy called Keith Dugdale, who was the sales coach. And he actually left PwC and created something called Better Buyer Relationships and Smarter Selling. And it was about how do you help the buyer make the decision. And I kind of put these two things together. So how do you, as a salesperson, help the buyer with what their needs are? And their needs might not always align with what your needs are in terms of selling. And there was a book called, which I think is still really good. It's called The Trusted Advisor. It's called by David Meister. And he talks about the trust equation. And it's very much around how trust goes into selling. And his equation of trust is trust equals credibility plus reliability, plus something you don't hear about a lot in business called intimacy, which is actually how well do you get to know someone? And you divide all that by the degree of self-orientation. So how much of this is about me, my needs, my sale when you're in an interaction with people? So reliability, so do you do what you say you'll be? Credibility, so do you know what you're talking about? And be vulnerable about things you don't. And intimacy, how much time do you spend building that relationship? And then the last, and then you divide that by how self oriented you are. Now, I'll 
it's a long way to get to the LinkedIn one because in 2006, I started, I really came out of PwC and started Sustainovation, my own business. And it was at the time when electronic mark, electronic direct marketing was happening. Vision 6 was a Brisbane-based company. I used to put out a monthly e-newsletter that I'd sit up in the night and I would think about what have I seen in the last month that would be of value to people in my network. And I had no no contacts to start with, and I started building that up. Around about the same time, in fact, early 2006, I started using LinkedIn, which had only been used, I think it was only launched about three years prior in the US. Um, So I've been on LinkedIn for about 17 years. What it's really good is for exactly doing that. So just putting things that you think are of value, it's not about, it is also about celebrating, and it is also about connecting with new people. But it's also just about putting stuff out there that you think might be of value and sharing that. And I found through my e-newsletter that I did that I would send it out and and eventually it got up to 800, 1,000 people were getting this a month. And they would come back to me, even though I hadn't sold in it, I was delivering value. And so people would say to me, I I get my EA to print it out and then I highlight it or I get I read it, you know, in paper copy or I highlight the events that I'm going to do next month or that kind of stuff. But I also had people that say, hey, thanks for the newsletter. We've got this piece of work. Would you be interested in, you know, doing this kind of piece of consulting work for us? Or could you facilitate a workshop? And I also got people that would contact me and say, I really love your newsletter. It's made me really think about what I'm doing next. And so I've quit my job and I'm now working doing this other thing which is more impactful or or i'd get early indications that people were leaving a job they'd say look i i I really want to keep getting your newsletter but i've actually moved job i'm now working here can you update my contact details so i was getting these insights about what was happening in the market before other people were and i was getting projects but not because i was selling but because i was adding value connection and linkedin really has yeah connection and linkedin is like that what I also like about LinkedIn is really my only contact database and people update their own information. I don't know if you've ever had a mailing list or a contact database. Staying on top of it is almost impossible. But with LinkedIn, people update their own. They update their own jobs. You get notification when people go to new jobs. You can contact people you don't know. I always, if I do contact someone I don't know, I'm doing it because I've got something I think will be of value to them. It's a report. It's uh, it's an opportunity for them. That's how I look at it. And I also always say, hey, we haven't met. You don't know me. But, and then there's the connection. You know, I saw you speak at something. Congratulations on an award you won. I was thinking of you the other day because I know you're trying to achieve this. And I saw this grant opportunity or I saw this report came out that I thought might be of interest to you and people respond to that right and what it does is it strengthens your overall community so that if ever you need to pick up the phone or there is something you want to talk to people about or you want something to make an introduction for someone they're like yeah sure that's great because you've built out that relationship capital you're not trying to spam people with you know, here's, here's an opportunity. I'm starting to see a bit more of that, but it's getting easier to deflect people who kind of are doing the, the AI for appointment setting or just kind of social media marketing through LinkedIn. But it's a great way of staying in touch with people that you can't have a coffee with every month, but you may not see them or speak to them for a few years, 
but they're part of that LinkedIn connection. They see what you're doing. You see what they're doing. You reconnect and it's almost like you're old friends and you've got a lot to talk about. You keep those relationships fresh. So I I find LinkedIn helpful. I'm in a number of companies I've got and worked in, I've actually done LinkedIn workshops for them. And in fact, someone was saying to me the other day in in the organization I chair, uh, be really good actually if you could come in and talk to our team about how you use LinkedIn. <laughs> so, but I don't put myself on LinkedIn as LinkedIn's number one kind of influencer and and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a bit of an Instagram crossover with LinkedIn these days, which is a little. Um, it probably uh, becomes a bit more parody type stuff. I think on LinkedIn. Mm. I think it's interesting. My 16 year old son, Lockie. The last couple of years, I've said to him because he's he's a big thinker. He loves connecting to people. He's got some big kind of mentors, and he loves connecting with success and how do people operate and how have they become successful. And he deep dives into a lot of things. And I said to him, I said, "Oh, you should get on LinkedIn." I said because he doesn't like social media. I said LinkedIn. Anyway, we were driving in the car the other day. He was coming back from a entrepreneur's function and. He said to me, oh, dad, do you think I use LinkedIn? And it was interesting because like I said, the articles on it, the information, the connections and what you want to do in, in life and the people you want to connect with, it's it's a fantastic platform. It's, it's not an Instagram or a Facebook. It's not this, there's some really good data and a lot of it is accurate data on LinkedIn as well. It's articles that are written, research papers and those kind of things. So it's just interesting how he was. He looked at me one day and he's like, LinkedIn? No, not LinkedIn. And now he's like, oh, what's, what's LinkedIn? And how do you think I could use LinkedIn? So Yeah. So it's a, it's a professional community, right? And, you know, what I often find is LinkedIn is uh, it's like that contact database. It's people you're sharing information with. Not a lot of one-on-one. A lot of the one-on-one stuff then comes off of LinkedIn. Often it's kind of we do a little couple of messages or something and it's like, could you send me an email at? And then we might have a video call. If they're in Brisbane, we might have a coffee. I rarely say no to having a coffee with people because I, I'm fascinated. I'm curious. That's what's driven my career. I like meeting people who have got energy for what they're doing because it energizes me as well. It gives me new perspectives. It gives me new networks new ways of looking at a problem and it's just fun and so I do that a lot and what I did find pretty much in the early days I don't know if it's still the case but it was interesting if you tried to email someone to get hold of maybe the CEO or someone senior in the organization or you emailed them or tried to ring them you never got them right it went to one of their gatekeepers but if you sent someone a LinkedIn message it often went directly to them And particularly, and it probably doesn't work the same way now, but if you did that on a weekend when the gatekeeper was clocked off, you often got that. And I tended to find that senior executives, if I was trying to contact them, Sunday afternoon was when they were on LinkedIn. That's when they were probably sitting in the office, maybe even sitting at home, maybe on the the deck. Uh, They were getting themselves ready for the week. They were dealing with some stuff, but they were actually the first responders. They weren't being filtered at that stage because the, the EA, the person in the office, wasn't working on a Saturday or a Sunday. So you had this window of opportunity on a Sunday where you could you could get hold of the CEO. And it wasn't because I was hard selling them or anything. I just really wanted to make a connection. Yeah. Inspired by what they were doing, saw, saw that we were both trying to do the same thing and maybe we should explore opportunities to collaborate is what I would, I would talk about. 
in whatever that way that meant. It was never like, hey, I've got this product, would you like to buy it? It was never that shallow or that transactional. It's always about, hey, we could. I'd love to catch up. I'd love to learn what you're doing and, um, and let you know what we're doing. And I think that might be really valuable. Spent a bit of time on that section, but I think that there was a lot of great insights in there. So thank you very much for that. I think there's going to be a lot that people can kind of take away through that job career, LinkedIn, and some tips for kind of applying and interviewing for jobs as well. One thing I wanted to ask you is your current role now as the CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen, CRC. Can you give me a bit of an idea on what that is? Sure. Cooperative research centres are about a 30-year running Australian government program to bring together industry, government and research to tackle medium and long-term problems in the Australian economy. And we are bidding to establish a scaling green hydrogen cooperative research centre. I've been involved in hydrogen for about five years. Producing hydrogen is not a difficult thing, but it's the great thing about hydrogen is that it can be an energy carrier. And if it's done through, if that energy is green, so if it comes from, say, wind and solar, then when you burn hydrogen, it just releases water vapour. It doesn't emit carbon emissions. So for addressing climate change and the energy transition, it becomes quite a flexible fuel and chemical. So challenges, it hasn't been scaled. The largest operating electrolyzer in the country is 1.25 megawatts. We envisaged by 2040, we might need one terawatt, which is 800,000 times the size of the existing one that's there. And the challenge is, is that it, it requires a lot of problems to be overcome, but a lot of new connections to be made. And because I like making connections, the way that green hydrogen is produced is through electrolysis. So you basically take hydrogen out of water, which is H2O, take the H out, um, you're, you're left with oxygen, and then you can use that hydrogen in a number of applications. It can go into production of chemicals, it can go into fuels, it can store electricity, it can go into hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, it can be used to refine biofuels for things like sustainable aviation fuel, it can even replace a lot of other things in things like steel manufacturing or in aluminium or in other big industrial applications. We've put together 97 partners uh, we've got our stage two interview, which is the final step coming up in about a month. And we're asking the Australian government for $50 million over a 10-year period. So if by the end of this calendar year we're funded, we will establish the Cooperative Research Centre in mid-2024 and it'll run for a decade. And it'll work across those 97 partners to co-develop practical solutions to accelerate the development of green hydrogen as a tool in the toolkit of decarbonisation. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. It's interesting when you talk about renewable energies, climate change, a lot of the time, a lot of, a lot of people look at climate change and it's, oh, it's the protesters that are laying down on the streets and it's, you know, and there's this, this real conspiracy theory around it. What do you think people need to be aware of when it comes to climate change, to renewable? I think the important thing to I think is that we often look at these things and go, uh, we're either doing one thing or another. We're very binary in our thinking. And, and you often hear about trade-offs. Uh, well, if we're going to pay our workers more, 
company is going to be less successful. Um, if we're if we're going to look after the environment more, there'll be less natural resources for us to make money out of. If we consider the communities we're working in, or we save the red-bellied parrot or something, we'll be worse off as a result economically. I don't have much sympathy for that kind of thinking because it's back in a transactional sense. It's back in a win-lose sense. Probably one of my most formative books from a business perspective was uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. And he talked about that win-win, beyond win-win into synergy. So to me, it's about how do you bring together these parts? There is money to be made from decarbonisation. There is absolute business opportunities in the energy transition. There are jobs. There's revenue, there's profits, there's tax revenue. If this is done in a way where diverse groups of people come together and go, how can we achieve what we individually want to achieve, but collectively, magic happens. And I've seen that through my career, where people think they're on different sides, like a tug of war. And once they realize they can work together, and they can make these things better, it helps. So to me, it's about environmental impact and it's about social impact, which is very much the why of what we're doing. And then you use the the economy and the markets as drivers for change. But economies and markets are not good arbiters of what should be changed, right? So if you just let it go at it, you'll get some really obscene kind of outcomes, potentially really damaging outcomes. But if you do it in the right way, if you guide the market to what can be done, then the market is the best distribution tool that we've got, where people are making small amounts of value as part of a value chain. They're incentivized, and this is what it is, incentivized to change, incentivized to take something to impact. And you kind of got to believe in the science of these things. That were, it, in fact, believe is the wrong word. These aren't beliefs. In a rational sense, you take evidence and you act on the evidence. And what's the worst thing that happens if finally we work out that maybe uh, we didn't need to do something? Well, gee, cleaner air for communities, less carbon emissions, less, wow, you know, these would be nice externalities to have if, if we found that, and, and potentially the jobs and everything that we're going to create. So, so I always think it's important to bring a group, diverse group of people together, build that trust build that sense of intersecting self-interest. So it's not necessarily that they all believe in the same thing. They don't all sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya together. It's very much around they see where they're going to extract value from it. And it might not be direct value. It might be because now I'm going to create a bigger market because I'm working with all these other people and therefore it, it secures my slice much better than, than absolutely being hyper-competitive over a small pool of opportunity. So that's probably not talking necessarily about climate change, but the science has been developed over decades and decades and decades. It's not the same as weather, which people get hooked up on. So, wow, it's a really cold day today. There's no climate change happening. It's about extremes. It's about unpredictability in the weather patterns around the world. And it's also about feedback loops. You know what? You know When you start rolling a snowball down a, a mountain, right, it's low to start with and then it builds up and it builds up and gets bigger and bigger. The same thing's happening in climate change, right? So your listeners might be hearing about El Ninos and La Ninas and the Southern Oscillation Index and the Indian Dipole and what's happening with seawater. So oceans are heating up. Now, if oceans are heating up, they're releasing more water vapour, more water vapour 
creates potentially more unstable atmosphere. It creates more fierce cyclones. It also means the absorption of carbon in the oceans. It changes the, the ecosystem. It kills off marine life, which it's a system. So systemic thinking, I think, is really important. How these things fit together. And once they start speeding up, so once ice, for example, disappears and it was reflecting solar radiation off of Earth, then it changes all of a sudden the next year, find it difficult to absorb more of that carbon. So it works the same way that interest accumulation does, right? You you make 10 bucks this year, next year you're making 15 bucks because you've got a larger sum. And so it's that accumulation which becomes the challenge as well. I've always tried to take quite a rational approach to my life as well, knowing that people make irrational decisions, people make it on emotion and belief, but trusting the science, it's why I can go in and have an operation and I go... I'm pretty relaxed about having an operation because I trust the medical training system. I understand the science behind how that surgery is done, the regulation on the people that manufacture the everything that I'm doing and everything is actually there to make me safe, as safe as I can be, knowing that you can't guarantee an outcome. And it's the same with any of these kind of science-based approaches. You have to kind of trust it, knowing that they're always working on it to make that science better. It's going to take a big shift by governments, corporations, organisations. Then they're going to have to communicate that well, which is not always done. I think the big thing is there's going to be sacrifice, compromise, and a lot of organisations and governments are, are led by the dollar, right? Well, and I think, and I think that's it's, a, it's absolutely true that that there will be there'll be some, it'll be rocky, right? Any transition's rocky. If you could actually say, look, we're going to close down the energy system for a couple of years, we're going to do a refurbishment, come back in a couple of years and we'll be open for business again, you can't, right? Where, what do they say? It's like building the plane while you're flying it. And that's what we're doing with the energy transition, right? So people, we're using electricity now. At this time of day in Queensland, it's probably mainly renewables. But if we were doing this at uh, 10 o'clock tonight, it will probably be mainly coal. Mm. But we need that energy. Energy is an absolute enabler. So how do you build that in? There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be investments that were really poor investments. There's going to be mistakes that are made. In any change initiative, you can kind of resist and you can hold back and make it often worse. Or you can lean in and go, I'm going to lead this. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be bold. And I'm, it's not going to, it's going to be a rocky ride, but I'm up for this, right? I'm going to be skiing the moguls and I'm going to find joy in that and do that. Or you can kind of be, to use the same analogy, staying at the top of the ski slope and wondering whether you can go down in the chairlift or, or just standing there. So what we're trying to do in the CRC is try to encourage a number of organizations because it's very hard to lead on your own. But if you're part of a group, you get comfort, you can de-risk it, you can share costs, you can share benefits. It can bring your ability to lead forward. And I think that's the important thing. So how do we bring government, industry, research, community together, not to throw rocks at each other and blame the government or blame business or blame community or anyone? How do we actually get people to go, you know, this is a tough thing. If we all work on this together and have each other's backs, then we, we could get going a lot quicker. But governments are fearful, right? They're fearful still of the front page of the newspaper about what they're going to do. And so we end up with the governments that we deserve because if we're 
paying for blood on every poor decision they do. And I'm sure in my career, I've never made every decision has been the best decision. And if we hound people for going on holidays, well, you need your rest and recreation to be able to make good decisions. I was saying about this week, I've been busy in Melbourne. I know I'm feeling a bit flatter than I normally would be. I need to take a break. And that was like three days. If I'm a premier or a prime minister or a CEO or a chair in the spotlight, having to make good decisions 24-7, 365 days of the year, it ain't going to happen, right? So people need to take the rest. We need to give people permission to be humans and to be vulnerable and give them the, the ability to seek help and to say, hey, this is tough. We're going to need everyone behind us, oh, not behind us, but working with us on this. And I'm not going to make every decision perfectly, but I'm going to do as best as I can. And that to me is a good leader. Yeah. I love your explanation there on on climate change and, and renewables and some of the insights around how we're going to change, need to change. It's going to be an interesting topic that we're going to be following in, in many, many years to come. And hopefully it's communicated well and, and people jump onto it more. I think a lot of the time with climate change, if it doesn't fit in a headline on a newspaper or a six o'clock news, it just gets lost in translation and people just, it isn't communicated to people properly. Yeah. Remember communications 50-50, right? So it's not communicated to, it's communicated with, right? Hmm. When I started Sustainabation, I said I sent out that e-newsletter once a month. Um, I tried to overcome that headline grabbing stuff by, I would go looking for the report that the, the, the article was written on. So maybe it was a 200-word article or a 500-word article, maybe, probably not that much. But I would find the report and I would put a link to the report in my e-newsletter. I didn't put any judgment on it, but I'd say if people are interested in it, go read the report. People have put a lot of effort into those reports. A lot of cases have been peer-reviewed. They might have taken years. They've looked at millions of data points. If you can be swayed by a six-word headline on the front page of a newspaper where they know that outrage and controversy sells newspapers, then I don't have much sympathy for someone that says, well, I'm not being communicated to the right way. If you don't know, go and find out. I mean, we we have in our palms of our hands, we have the world's information. So if you choose to remain ignorant about any issue, that's a choice. You've got to say that's a conscious choice I'm making. That's the hardest thing with a lot of issues, right? Because people just want the snapshot. They don't want to do the work to actually research or read up on what it actually means to them or what it actually is. Yeah. And it's a, it's a concern I think we have with too much information now, right? So, you know, if you go back before the internet, we, we had very little information. You had to go to a library. Uh, you didn't have online. You had trusted people you had to do all your business with. You'd have seen this in real estate. It's the same in travel. It's in the same lot of services. If you wanted to fly somewhere, you went to a travel agent. Or if you wanted to buy a house, you went to a real estate agent. But now that information, you've got realestate.com.au. You've got airlines have got their own travel stuff. You can, you can go and do that. You can do your own research and you can make your own decisions. But what has been really interesting is that Back then, you know, you had a really trusted person that you went to, your accountant, you didn't do your, couldn't do your own tax return, you had to go to an accountant, and you built up these trusted relationships. Then we had this kind of deluge of information. So everyone could be an expert. 
but they're not really because if you've got a 30, 40 year career in something, my accountant was always going to be more experienced than me in accounting. But I could Google how to get the best tax deduction for blah, 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 and find something or go onto YouTube or someone says something and I go, I go to my accountant and say, well, I could do that. And sometimes that helps. Sometimes that's useful. Maybe the, there is a, a different thing that you can do. But what we're moving back to, I think, is that we're trying to find, again, with all that information, it's overwhelming, is to find people that we believe. And I think there's a challenge with that because confidence trumps expertise every time. So I can go, don't do this. And I can be really confident about it. And I can say, don't do this. And I've got lots of followers and I've got lots of viewers. And I say, don't, don't believe the experts, the elite. You know, these people who have studied all their lives and focused on this and have got lots of impact, don't believe them. Believe me, you know, I'm a 20-year-old YouTuber. I've got uh, 10 million followers and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an expert on everything. But you trust me because you believe in me and because you're not going to go and do the work and find out about something. And that's dangerous. It's really dangerous. It goes back into a belief system rather than a scientific-based, evidence-based approach. But it, I can understand why people do it. Because it's hard. There's so much information out there. It really is hard. But if you can find people that you do trust but have evidence behind it and have experience, that's good. What I tend to find is people who have evidence and experience are less confident because they only know science is a, is a period of actually starting with not knowing and working towards knowing. And so you'll talk to a scientist who will say, well, what do you think about, let's say, climate change? And they'll go, well, based on the information we have now, what this is where we think it might be going and everything. And you look at that and go, does that person really know what they're talking about? But someone else could go, climate change, it's a scam, right? And you go, and people go, oh, which one sounds more confident? It's easier to believe. There's a great cartoon. People should look it up. I love it. It's got, it's got two boots. One's uh, uh, an inconvenient truth. And the other one's got a comforting lie. And there's a big queue at the comforting lie. And there's no one at the inconvenient truth. And I think we've, one of the things we should be teaching our kids and teaching people is actually that systemic stuff, how to find the evidence, how to f separate truth from opinion, mm. and how to, how to do your own research. And how do you understand how all these things work together? Why are people saying and doing the things they were? What's their agenda? And being able to critically think and examine stuff. Because there's very little truth in the world. There's perspectives of truth. But actually understanding how all that works, why people are saying or doing what they're doing, I think brings wisdom. It brings knowledge to a conversation. And that's where I like to be. Uh, because people say to me about scaling green hydrogen, I go, well, I don't know whether green hydrogen is going to be a big player or not. But what I do know is we, we're, we're going to need some of it. But I'm not going to argue with you about whether it's battery electric vehicles or whether there's going to be new technologies. We have to keep an open mind. I'm not going to be out there on the in a protest saying we need more green hydrogen, green hydrogen now, that kind of stuff. It's just a tool. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated to see where it goes. But if we don't give it a chance, if we don't scale it up, if we don't get the costs under control, if we don't make it safe, if we don't build out a way of producing and using it, which benefits people, then it's just a moot point. We're never going to be able to use it. Yeah. I think we're in the age of too much information, misinformation and influence. You know, it's, there's all these factors that are really helping. And I won't even bring in AI into the conversation because we, we could have a, a long conversation around that. Paul, 
I wanted to just ask you a few last questions. When you think of success in your life, what does it mean to you? I think you define your own success. What are what are the criteria? What are what's the kind of life you want to lead? What's the kind of legacy you want to leave? And to me, that's not about the big things. It's about the little things. Those that are parents will know, and I've heard others talk about that. I think uh, Jet on one of your earlier podcasts talked about that. It's about the little things. It might be, and with kids, particularly kids who are younger, they don't want you for hours at an end. And even, you know, my youngest kid now, it's kind of like I'm opening a pack in EAFC, previously known as FIFA. And that takes, probably takes less than a minute. But he, he wants me to kind of stop what I'm doing, go open the pack. That's it. He wants someone else to witness him opening the pack to see whether he got a, a good player or not in the pack. And I think success to me is trying to be there for those small parts. And it's, it's hard. You can't do them all. My other son's playing handball on the Gold Coast today in the National University Championships. I'm choosing to not be there. I've been to see a lot of his handball games, but I, I'm doing that. And so part of it's in the mindset of I get to do these things. I make a conscious choice. I can't be perfect. I can't be everywhere. Um, but I'm, I think I'm making good choices. But knowing that I'm making good choices, I'm not being forced down a path that I don't want to be. If I'm going down that path, it's actually because I've got free will and I'm actually making those choices. And I think success is also about being vulnerable. And there's a great quote Winston Churchill is alleged to have said, which is success is moving from from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And I think there's some truth in that as well. You know, the world's imperfect. Life is challenging. Success is what you make of it. And a part of that is about confidence as well. I'm successful, not completely narcissistic and leaving a trail of destruction behind me and just saying I'm successful, but actually really in those moments during the day, am I being a good person? Am I, you know, being nice to other people? And really that's all I think we can probably look back on in later years is did, did it matter that I lived? Did I help people? Was I a good father to my kids? Was I a good husband to my wife? Was I a good partner or employee or colleague to people at work? Did I recognize and celebrate and and accept people? One other quote uh, I'll leave you with, Steve, that I really like is one that was Harry S. Truman said, is anything's possible as long as you don't care who takes the credit? So also think about how you have impact and don't necessarily feel like you've got to stand on the top of the podium or be celebrated for it. Get that warm sense of I actually helped I contributed, I made a difference, but I don't need to be on the front page of the magazine or the on the top of the podium. That's uh, that's such an important point there. I love that quote. That's awesome. One last question. You talked about, you know, different versions of Paul Hodgson at the start of this conversation. And I'd love to take you back to, say, the, the version teenage Paul Hodgson. What would you say to a teenage Paul Hodgson now, after all your journey of life? today? I think I would say trust your instincts. You're going to be okay. I think that would be a, a really big thing for for that because I think I was, a, I was an anxious teenager with that label of responsibility that I had with still being in a, in a foreign country and also being the oldest and not having older cousins or anything that I could talk to about life. I was kind of felt like I was, and you don't, you certainly didn't talk to your parents about 
a lot of things when you're a teenager. And I suspect that's still the case. And I didn't have a friend network or a cousin network to be able to do that either. And certainly didn't have the internet to look up things either. So I would say, look, trust your instincts, you're going to do all right. And I think that's how I've really lived my life. I've kind of been quite reflective, not being too tough on myself as well if I haven't done the right thing, but apologizing, being vulnerable and trying to move on. But I, I certainly like myself more as I get older, I think. I think I, I celebrate my quirks as well as my positive traits and, and are quite comfortable with who I am. Yeah, just be yourself. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Now, Paul, if people want to connect with you, I'm guessing LinkedIn as uh, a good plug for LinkedIn, uh, obviously through our conversation, but what's the best way to reach out to you? Probably LinkedIn. <laughs> but I mean, it's pretty easy to find me. People want to have a chat. I do, I actually get recruiters contacting me with people that come to them who say, you know, could you have a chat with this person there? They're at a career change or they're, they're kind of, I, I love to have a chat with people. Um, I love just to hear their stories. I love just to help them on their way. And again, it's usually down to people know what they want to do. They just don't have the confidence to do it. And so if you can just instill that confidence, be the mirror for them, help them validate, and also know that if they're going to make a decision, they can always undo a decision and do something else. So you're not locking in. There's very few decisions you're locking in for the rest of your life and just experience the journey. But yeah, if people want to get in contact with me. I'm always, always happy to build, build connections. Well, bro, I am really happy to have the conversation with you today. Obviously, we've had many conversations. I've seen your and heard your insights over the years, but absolute honor to share that with uh, with the listeners and um, share your insights, share your reflections and, and thoughts because I'm proud of you. You've done some some great things. As I said, I'm proud of you as a as a husband, as a father, but a, a phenomenal human being who who's helped shape my life. And I know there's always a shoulder there if I need to laugh, cry, or get some advice. So uh, I thank you for that, and and I thank you for sharing those today in today's episode. Well, it's a mutual fan club, Steve. So very proud of you, and love what you're doing with the podcast, and honoured to be not just on the podcast, but to call you my brother and my friend. So love you heaps, and keep doing it. Love you too, bro. All right. Catch up. Okay. Bye. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.